0: There's a handful of things in life that I know that I'm good at running a successful podcast for one, a website, photography, menu consulting, etc. But one of the things where I need help is my gardening, specifically culinary gardening. It's one thing to have a nice succulent or a pretty plant to look at, but there's nothing like growing your own food, herbs, and more. That's why I turn to my friend and friend of the Best Seeds podcast, Ashley Irene of Heirloom Potage for all things culinary gardening. She's an expert through and through who's worked with some of the best chefs and restaurants here in Orange County. Just see the work that she did up at the amazing Poppy and Seed in Anaheim or some of the work she's doing with chefs like Zach Sher over at the Bellow Chef's Table. She's talented, witty, incredibly smart, and a consummate professional through and through. Whether you're running a restaurant program, a craft cocktail program, or you just want to start growing some great food at home, She has everything you need and more. So to get more information, set up a consultation, or just to see some of the things that she's done in the past, check out heirloompotage.com for more information. This episode of the Best Seats Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. To learn how you can support the show, go to thebestseats.com slash patreon. Once there, you'll learn how you can get early access to shows, ad-free listening, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Once again, that's thebestseats.com Patreon. But enough of that. On to the show. What's up, everybody? Hello and welcome to the first ever episode 126 of the best seats podcast, the only podcast bringing you interviews of some of the most talented people in and around the hospitality community from right here in Orange County, where the show is based to the rest of Southern California and beyond each and every episode. As always, I'm your host, Crawford McCarthy, founder and principal of the best seats. You can find me, obviously, all over Instagram at The Best Seats. Also, I'm doing photography now, so there's a secondary account, The Best Seats Studios, if you want to check that out. Thank you so much to my friend, Allie Coyle, who provides the music for the show. Actually, it's a happy birthday to Allie on the day that I'm recording this intro, so it may not be after you listen to it. But again, happy birthday to Allie. She makes the show sound good. As always, do not forget that the very best experience can be found over at TheBestSeats.com where you can find more content just like this. You can check out the blog. You can check out the merchandise store. But... The very, very best is for those of you who support each and every month. And I thank you so much for doing so over on patreon.com forward slash the best seats where you can get early ad free listening to each and every episode. You get exclusive access to the bonus episodes with a bunch of more stuff planned for 2023. Also, Patreon has made a lot of changes in the past like two months, give or take with app updates. The UI is different, but there's also a lot of really cool back end stuff, including the ability to for me to sell exclusive one-off pieces, whether those are episodes or special things. Uh, There's also some free access. So if you are interested in checking out Patreon, I think what I might do is go back and open up some of the older bonus episodes. So if you kind of want to get an idea of what that's like, you can check out some of those for free, no matter, like, you don't have to pay any cost, um, even as low as that $2 a month. If you want to get an idea of what it's like, it's kind of like a preview. I'm still learning some of the new updates that they put in myself, but... Yeah, there's a bunch of new stuff coming. Um, so look for some even more kind of cool stuff to come to Patreon now that they're making it even easier for creators. And I thank to them to that team for doing so. Enough of that. Let's jump into the show. Um, if you listened to the episode one or two episodes ago um, with my friends Lamar and Sonia from Wine Militia and Militia Consulting, we were talking about the Santa Barbara Vintners Festival. Um, I was up in Santa Barbara and I already had the podcast equipment in my trunk at about 45 minutes in the drive. I was like, hey, if anybody wants to record, I would love to sit down with some winemakers while I'm up there. Now, this was a tight schedule for this weekend. Again, driving up, had a tasting that afternoon over at another winery. Shout out to that team. You know who you are, and I love you for doing that. But I wanted to sit down with some people and because, again, it's hard. As much as I love doing remote um, for those three, four-hour time differences or even states away, it's always better to sit down in person. Thankfully, Colin McNaney of Marbesso Wine Company, jumped on that Instagram post immediately. We were able to schedule up a time, basically dropped the bags at the hotel, went right over to his um, tasting room, and we were able to talk about his wines, his experience as a winemaker. He's someone who's been in the game 20 years. Now he's launching his own project with Marbeso. It's been around, I want to say 2019 was the first vintage. Might have been 2018. You'll hear it in the show from him directly. But one of those really, really great stories. I love talking to winemakers from all over. Um, recently had the guys down in Temecula from Ween Cellars on. That's a little bit bigger of an operation. I was very curious what a smaller operation looked like. I mean, we're talking (laughs) not that many cases, to put it lightly. You know, very much kind of a one-man show. Him and his wife, he's really just putting in that effort, and he's making killer wines. Um, He was nice enough to be tasting me on them kind of right before and even during the show um, and in between the post-show and the bonus episode and stuff like that. And it's just really good stuff. And it's a really cool story when you have somebody that's been in that industry for so long, they put so much effort into it, and then they get to make really their own thing and a style. And why did they choose Santa Barbara? And what's it like to do that and moving up from L.A.? and. Man, you launch a new wine company and it's pretty much only direct to consumer. And then, oh, yeah, COVID. So it's a really awesome episode. I'm so, so grateful that we were able to carve out the time to do this. Shout out to his wife as well. She was the one who really helped facilitate this through social media while he was obviously making wine. They are in the middle of harvest um, at this time, too. A lot of winemakers actually still are even now, which is wild. But, hey. Earth is getting warmer and grapes are getting more stubborn. So shout out to everybody that really took the time during that weekend. But yeah, this is a really fun one. Um, check out their wines. They're delicious. But in the meantime, enjoy episode 126 of the Best Seeds podcast featuring owner and winemaker of Marbesso Winery, Colin McNaney. Colin, thank you so much for taking the time Um, up here in Santa Barbara. Obviously, I'm coming up for, at the time of this recording, the Vendors Festival is tomorrow, but I reached out on social media, I said, hey, I've already got the podcast equipment in my car, would love to get some winemakers on. Your wife immediately reached out to me and I could not be more excited to be here at Marbeso. Um, But before we dive into your wines, your winemaking approach, your background, your history, would you mind introducing yourself and giving a little bit of your background?
1: Yeah, sure, so my name's Colin. Um, I've been making wine for about, will be my 20th vintage in 18 years kind of cut my teeth in santa cruz mountains um studied sustainable agriculture agroecology at ucsc uncle Charlie summer camp and then uh, (laughs) i've never heard that before that's awesome summer camp It it was a good time um but apart from that um you know learned how to grow food and then it kind of spiraled into sustainable viticulture Wrote a thesis on sustainable vit, and then planted a vineyard up in in Aptos. And uh, from there, started planting vineyards all over the mountains. Got a job at Byington Winery. Um, There was a whole collection of winemakers there. Jeff Emery, Santa Cruz Mountain Vineyard. Ryan Beauregard, Beauregard Vineyards. And uh, it was kind of a um, fast-paced slide into winemaking. And so you'd walk in the lab, six different things going on, start taste, taste, taste. And they go, hey, this kid's got a really good palate. So that kind of spurred me into, uh, okay, you know, I can, I could become a winemaker, you know, and, and was obviously very fascinated with the industry. Um, it takes a lot of skill to grow a perfect crop, let alone take that perfect crop and turn it into something beautiful like wine. So I took that tool um, and the experience and then went over to Martinborough Vineyards in North Island, New Zealand. I mm-hmm. realized I could take winemaking, you know, uh, and use it as a tool to travel, right? And so Landed in North Island, New Zealand, Martinborough Vineyards, making all natural uh, Pinot Noir, uh, natural ferments, and they were very esteemed in what they did. And um, yeah, surfed all over the island, back to Santa Cruz, and then 2012, went to Western Australia, Margaret River, Lewin Estate, making high-end Chardonnay. Yeah. So surfing and winemaking and putting myself on the coastlines of these beautiful parts of the world were kind of my, my jam. And so um, collectively back to the Santa Cruz Mountains was was making wine for a company called La Honda Winery. We we're doing about 2,000 cases planting uh, boutique vineyards for um, venture capitalists basically of Santa Cruz Mountains. So when I started that company, we only had a handful of vineyards by the time I left in 10 years. We had 150 vineyards, eight full-time guys, collectively 40 acres, about
0: 2,000 cases. That's awesome.
1: It was pretty cool, you know. Um, I got to see a lot, make a lot, and uh, the exposure was was pretty great um, into what we were doing. But I wanted more focus, and so at that time and frame, my wife and I uh, decided we wanted to create our own brand. So we were either going to go north or we were going to go south. North Napa, Sonoma, Mendocino, uh, Napa and Sonoma were pretty saturated for a small independent producer to try and be someone. Um, Mendocino was epic, Anderson Valley, awesome wines. It was just too far from our home front, basically in Southern California. So we settled in Santa Barbara County, which is very supportive of independent small boutique winemakers. It's also a young wine growing region and collectively as a whole. And uh, yeah, we we fit here. And so we started the brand Marbeso, uh, Bessel del Mar, Kiss of the Sea. Uh, 2019 was our first vintage. And so it's taken us about five years to ramp up to this point where we're living here now permanently, making about 1, cases, um, a thousand cases from a handful portfolio of awesome vineyards in Santa Barbara County, and uh, just as of like a month ago, doing direct-to-consumer here in our killer little tasting room in, uh, in, in the cellar in Bulton.
0: I was going to say, I mean, that's where we're recording today. Um, obviously, audio podcast, people can't see it, but this is an awesome little tasting room. And again, like you've been kind enough to taste me on you know, one of the wines. I'm going to taste the Chardonnay in a little bit uh, once we're done recording this. But I mean, these are really, really killer. It's one thing. It's a deeply passionate thing to make wine. It's one of, I mean, farming in general, because at the end of the day, that's what you're doing. You're growing something for consumption is deeply passionate. It takes a lot of sacrifice and a lot of work. I think winemaking even a little bit more so just because of the amount of variables that can just go so wrong. I mean, you know, reading stories at of wineries that are closing out of BC and things like that, just due to climate and things where people are just losing crops. I mean, this is a big dedication. Was it just the drive of, I've been doing this for X amount of years. I know what I'm doing. I know the path that I want to take to do it. I want to just do this for myself. I mean, were there, was it just that drive that, hey, I want my own label. Like I want to make my wine.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think there was like a selfishness element to it, yeah. but it was basically like I and ego is not necessarily a thing in it either, but I know I'm good at it, you know what I mean? And I've been doing it for a long enough time where where I, I wanted skin in the game, you know what I mean? And obviously it came from, I love wine, I love fine wines, you know, before kids, my wife and I would travel to Chile, to Argentina, to Europe, to Portugal, to England, you know, Mallorca, just tasting wines, right? That was kind of the coolest part about traveling and working uh, vintages abroad, you were immediately absorbed into these communities where all of a sudden you're at family barbecues, you know, as soon as you land, yeah. you're in the winery, you meet 20 people and they're all invited, you know, and then when you're traveling, that's the hardest part is to, to be immersed into local culture uh, as, as, a, as a traveler. And so it became a tool and, and a community across the globe that I just felt I resonated with but also my wife and I just love tasting wines. I mean, it's like opening up, um, opening a bottle is like a ticket to a different country. Yeah. You know what I mean? You, you get to, you know, within a bottle of wine, there's culture, there's climate, there's geography, you know, there's viticulture, right? And then winemaking. And so it's, it's a quick trip somewhere else, right? And, and I think that's why a lot of people love wine, but um, I guess back to your point, I have a passion for wine and I just, I wasn't going to feel, feel fulfilled if I didn't continue to push further and further into this venture. And, um, and people love our wines, you know, I think partly because our style is very minimal interventionist. Um, you know, uh, the idea is to taste a sense of place, um, transparency between vineyard and glass, right. And not taste wine making. And I think that's, what we're trying to achieve and why people like our wines. Who, uh, I mean, everyone who comes in, and walks in, walks out with bottles, right? And then yeah. and the following, it's an organic movement, no and that's why it was hard yeah. to be a, a virtual winemaker because we built this business for the last five years from Manhattan Beach in Southern California. Even though the wines were very good, it was it's impossible it's impossible to be a virtual winemaker. Yeah. So at that point, I said, Hey, look, we got to we have to move up to you know the business is at a point where we need to the direct to consumer. But we also need to physically be here when people say, hey, Mareso, we want to taste your wine. Say, come on over. You know what I mean? And actually be here so it's a tangible thing. And that wine is a dedication where you only succeed if you're 100% in the game. 100%, yeah. You You have to be 100%. And so that was a learning lesson in the last five years, even though, you know, we were growing, growing, growing. There's just a certain, at a wholesale value, there's only... It, you, it's, it's tough to be a virtual winemaker. Well, and it, 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 Or winery. No, 100%, wine.
0: I, I agree with you. I mean, that virtual aspect is impossible and it begs the question because it's the elephant in the room. You started, you know, 2019, which you said your first vintage, obviously everything was virtual the year after that with 2020 sure. and COVID and everything else. I mean, it's hard enough to navigate a new business in any aspect of the hospitality industry, whether you're doing restaurants, bars, whether you're making something, but wine, especially, I mean, being a new kind of a label, like trying to get your name out there, and then everybody has to stay home, and you don't want to be a virtual brand. How was it navigating? I mean, I have to ask, how was it navigating kind of those COVID years as a small startup? It was tough. Upstart?
1: I kind of took my my little my teeny fortune, you know what I mean, and, and made forty barrels of wine, right? Uh, and then COVID hit, and I go, awesome, you know what I mean? I just dumped my, my life savings into <laughs> yeah. into a business that evo- that is strictly evolves around sensory evaluation. You know, <laughs> during a global pandemic.
0: I mean, wine is one of the most intimate interactions you can have yeah, totally. with any type of consumable item.
1: You know, and that's part of the seller here is like the, is telling the story and the tangibility yeah. of face to face. Right. And then and then the vibe is set, you know, and like you can't you can't get that. There's no scratch and sniff on Instagram. Right. Yeah. So, so we were at a point where, you know, the wine industry was very resilient and virtual tastings came out of left field, right? Which was really cool. And so we started that and then we slowly built and, and, and businesses started coming around again, you know what I mean? And so we, we sat tight and pretty for a while um, and uh, had alternative incomes and were able to persevere out of it. But I think the biggest point was the, the, the virtual tastings. So we kind of did our first release, which was very successful online nice you know and we had an awesome turnout you know and it was just being creative where we where i sent uh like 100 mil bottles of flights right you know packaging up 60 of those and just sending them across the country right and then going live and then having people buy cases after that you know that's awesome there was good feedback there was good support right and obviously it was okay we can do this you know and and we we just ran we just Kept her head down and kept on going. Good for you guys. Right.
0: Now that you're here in Santa Barbara, you know, obviously you've kind of made wine all over the world. You know, Australia, I mean, you're talking, you know, everywhere from kind of those big, big reds to the high acid sobs, things like that. What was it, I mean, outside of the open armness, kind of that welcoming atmosphere of Santa Barbara winemaking country, which is one of my favorite things about this region of that ability to be like, yeah, come in, like and make good stuff, like have fun. Like sure. it's a very supportive community was there something about the region as far as the viticulture goes, like the ability to work with so many different varietals given the landscape of this area or anything like that?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, originally I was very attracted to Santa Rita Hills. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. It basically has that sparkle factor Yeah, I mean, 100%. where there's wines you taste and you're, you're blown away. Yeah. You know what I mean? You go, this has pedigree on the global scale. Right. And being, who I am, I'm very, I I, I gravitate towards Pinot Noir. I gravitate towards Burgundy. Um, And so that sparkle factor was like, okay, there really is something special about Santa Rita Hills, point conception, you know what I mean? How the the transverse geology, right? You know, from Alaska to Argentina, every mountain range runs north to south except Santa Rita Hills, right? And so the ocean's influence into ancient seabed floors where these vines grow, You know whether it be limestone or pure beach sand um, they're very acid driven right and i think that was the biggest thing for me is like one would think oh santa barbara southern california can't grow grapes there you know what i mean it's too hot but the the reality is the diurnal shift it's so it gets cold at nighttime you know It it gets warm in the day right um, and that's just Santa Rita Hills, you know. And as soon as I moved here, I go, "Wow, you got Ballard Canyon, right? Which is all kind of like Rhone-producing stuff. And then you have Happy Canyon, which is all Cab's and Sabs and Bordeaux, And then you have Santa Maria, which is just another cool wine-growing region where you can you can eclectically kind of grow whatever you desire out there, right? And lots of it. And so I I realized there was a lot more to it than just the Santa Rita Hills. And so uh, it is. Is allowed us to just not make just Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, you know, making varietals like Grenache, Grenache Blanc, Carbonic Stuff, Pinot Gris, and, and really just having fun with the region. Yeah. Where I was never had, uh, we never really had exposure like that in the Santa Cruz Mountains. You know, it was very, it was a stiff line between Cab, Merlot, you know, on the East Side, West Side, or whatever it be, cool sites, Chard, Pinot. Right? You grow what you can grow. You grow yeah, what I you mean, can the, grow. The land's
0: going to give you what it can, but it is an amazing thing about, and again, I was just in Temecula on a press trip and they're like, yeah, we're just going to go full Italian. Like all of a sudden we went to everywhere. They're like, oh, you want to say some Montepulciano? They're like, yeah, because we can grow it. Santa Barbara, it's almost that times 10 because of that kind of, I think it's what Transverse transverse Valley is what it's called. Yeah, yeah. Transverse Geology. It's just, I mean, the options here are wild. As a winemaker, how do you balance keeping kind of the business on track and, and focused enough where the consumers are kind of like not, Confused by what's going on, but also you have this huge color palette of great flavors and varietals to work with. Yes. As a winemaker, how do you kind of approach kind of each harvest and and what yeah, you want I mean, to make? Yeah, I
1: mean, we're we're learning, obviously. You know, what I mean, obviously, we're a newcomer with a new brand, and everything we put in bottle is delicious. Um, we try to keep Marbeso basically super focused on Pinot Noirs, Chardonnays. Um, we, yeah, we always have a Nascona Vineyard Santa Cruz Mountain Pinot which has grown 2700 foot up on top of Skyline 100% whole cluster Pinot we always have our Our Lady of Guadalupe Santa Rita Hills Pinot all destemmed, stem so I, I can showcase people vintage to vintage these wines will always be there for you the Shard I've been bouncing around all over the Santa Rita Hills at different sites between Chapel, Kessler Hawk this year, a couple clones at Spear. Okay, yeah. Trying to basically, you know, I'm learning, you know, and 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 learning is a good thing, you know. Not that um, I've made mistakes, but to make vineyards from different vineyards and different clones. I mean, this is part of the the thirst and the desire for knowledge, right? Um, if I was to make the same thing all the time, it would kind of get boring and be repetition. And so, yeah, I think like a cook in the kitchen you always want to create a special meal, you know, or a special of the week or like, you know, these things are in season. So shit, we're going to run with it. Right. And so my wife and I love to cook. And so it's kind of that philosophy where you let the ingredients speak. And so, yeah, you, we're always doing something new. Like this year we did a hundred percent whole cluster gamay from Aliso's Canyon from Nolan. Awesome. Right. Um, carbonic Pinot Gris from North Canyon. Um, and the idea is that, there will always be something new, always something different, always something delicious coming down the pipeline to attract members to our wine club, yeah, or people in general coming to taste wines, right? And because we don't own any land, um, and we contract fruit, we have the ability to to grab fruit from different regions that are good at what they do. Yeah, hundred percent. Right? And so, so, so we put we put together a portfolio that. Hey, if you don't like this wine, it's all good. We have you know there will be something in the in the in the lineup that I guarantee you'll gravitate towards, right? And so, yeah, collectively, and we're growing, you know I mean we think um, we're working on different labels and 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 we have a, a our friend Kylie Long, who did our artwork. We're trying to have her be the budding artist behind all of our new and upcoming labels as well. She did. Marbeso, the, this lady of the sea, right here. Yeah,
0: there's a massive, really, really awesome mural.
1: And so, the and so, um, she's a beautiful young artist, and and we're trying to collaborate and you know showcase her work and and grow together, right? And so, I think there's an organic movement happening there that we, it's just a cool collaboration. That's great. So within the varietals and the fun things coming out, I guess is what I'm trying to say is that yeah. she will develop new labels that will different differentiate. Um, and you'll get to keep kind of playing
0: around with those different things. Yeah. You get and so and it's,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: You both, you, so you basically both get to be an artist just playing around with different kind of palettes and colors and things like that. And exactly. yours would be flavors and types. Exactly. Um, the term natural wine is nothing new. I mean, there's you know, places in Hungary and Italy and all over Europe that have been making quote unquote natural wine for generations, but the term natural wine really probably the past decade here in the U S um, really has gotten a lot of traction, especially places like Los Angeles, New York, parts of Texas, you see those kind of natural wine bars pop up, wine shops, things like that. As somebody who very much works with making low intervention wines, do you think there's kind of a misconception at this point about what natural wine is? Because I think a lot of people think like big mousy pet gnats and things like that. And it's really just letting the kind of fruit speak for itself and just not messing with it to some extent.
1: Yeah, I think the pendulum is swinging back um, cause it
0: got a little extreme there for a little bit. It's
1: pretty extreme, you know, and I've, I've tasted some pretty gnarly wines. I was you gonna know, say, I, and,
0: I still have a couple of funky bottles back at my place. And I'm yeah. like, I don't know if I'm gonna get to those. And I'm
1: in not to discredit them or what they're trying to achieve. No, but, not at you all. Know, we're trying to make super sound wines. Yeah. Microbially stable. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't really, I don't, I don't make zero, zero wines, but we don't add a lot of sulfur. We're very minimal in our amounts, but I do like SO2 because I do like clean wines. Yeah. And I do, because our wines are unfined, unfiltered, um, and, I'm, and, and they're living products, a little bit of SO2 makes me feel better. Plus, I like the way it tastes and smells. You know, it's just a cleaner approach. So our, our we're, we're, sh- we're shifting all of our wines to organic farming. You know, I think it's a big deal, and it's part of my education that I – feel so strongly about. Um, but the natural wine, move, it's a big wave, right? And we definitely want to ride that wave, but we're kind of on the, you know, we're between a rock and a hard place because we, we I don't want to be in the forefront of, of, of kombucha-esque wines. Yeah. Right? It's um, a great way to put it. We're trying to make more linear focused wines, right? And so things that maybe, maybe they're not as fresh as if we bottled them with turbidity in the spring, but they sat... On Lee's for 10 months, and then we're bottled, you know, a little more focus, a little more mm-hmm. restraint, a little more tension, I think is important for us in what we're trying to achieve. And so, not that there's a right way or a wrong way, you know what I mean? We're just trying to make the wines that we enjoy drinking. Yeah. Right? But when my wife and I go out and drink wines, you know, we love drinking. You know, that's those are the wines we gravitate towards, right? We drink the skin contact stuff, right? You know, and the funky stuff, not too funky, you know what I mean? But like, there's they can show a lot more expression and personality, right? And and uh, and freshness and and varietal characteristics that we we, we love to drink. Right?
0: Yeah. You mentioned that you contract um, to grab, I mean, there's only so much land to go around. There's a lot that goes into it. I mean, it's it, to say it's a huge investment is an understatement. What are some of the pros and cons with contracting to kind of get your juice versus having to worry about your own plot and constantly being there, like seeing what's going to come from the land?
1: Yeah, I think our next move is to lease some, some, some acreage Mm -hmm. so we could secure our costs and basically start being full circle wine growers. Yeah. I think there's a massive movement in our generation of that back to the land movement, right? Yeah, 100%. Young people are farming and making the wines and there's a lot of respect to be had for that because it's very difficult. Um, and you have all ultimately all the say in what you wanna do. And so, because I come from a farming background, I have confidence that that's where I wanna go with this next venture or where I see us going. Um, and contracting fruit is expensive. You know, you're paying premium price for premium fruit. Yeah. Right where you can reduce your costs if you have you know a healthy vineyard producing crop, a, a nice crop per acre. Right, and I'm not talking overcropping, but generally speaking, you know I think um, the bean counter would say that's probably the smarter move. <laughs> you no, know, but Santa Rita Hills, like Santa Rita Hills, is not the place to do it because they, they can crop an acre and a half you know, a t- or sorry, a, a ton and a half per acre, which is nothing, you know? And yeah. that's, that's it's so hard to get returns on that, right? But you can be in San Inez where you get four tons the acre on a different varietal, right? And that's a bit more sustainable in practice and theory. So yeah, where our vision is, is moving in that direction, right?
0: It's one thing to go out, pursue your dream after a very long and distinguished career, start a business, fight through COVID, fight through, and I want to ask you about this a little bit later, but fight through a wild 2023 um, with weather and stuff like that. Sure. All the rains. It's another thing to do it with a wife, kids, uprooting, moving, I mean, you know, moving out of Manhattan Beach. What's it like for you balancing, you know, I mean, you guys are obviously all in this as a family, but what's it like for you to balance kind of the work-life aspect?
1: Yeah, it's it all basically evolves into one big giant ball.
0: It's not so much work, it's just this is this, our this life. Is
1: li- this is our life. And yeah. I think part of it, it was like, I was raised in Los Angeles and I left when I was 18 and, and lived in Northern California for 18 years and loved it, right? And so we, we the move back to Southern California was, was a stint knowing that we were gonna be in wine country here. The two kids came, That was, I mean, it was part of the plan, but not part of like, you know, you kind of figure it out as you go. And so we were living in Manhattan beach with the business up here with the two kids. And I was going, this is hectic.
0: It's a hell of a commute. I mean, I I drove it this morning. Yeah. I mean, I would do it
1: once a month. Right. And I'd sleep at the winery and top barrels. And then during vintage, I would live up here for two months. But a lot of that time was, you know, in the beginning when we started, we didn't have kids. So my wife would be up here. We'd live up here for two months. Um, my godfather has 20 acres up off Roblar on a second home. So we would, nice. we had a, we okay. had a crash yeah. pad and we had a sweet crash pad. Oh, perfect pad. then. Yeah. So that was all unofficially wrote written into the business plan, right? But then the two kids just made it. It was cool when she, when Poppy, our oldest, she's four, was younger. So she was just always cruising. But now that once kids are in school, they're not so nomadic anymore, right? And so, and then being in school down there in Los Angeles is just hectic. And, it's a, it's even though it's a beautiful beach area it's the city right and so i i keep on saying life goes so f- fast we can't slow down so the, our idea was like hey look let's let's ramp up this business let's move up to wine country let's let's raise our kids in the country let's slow down let's enjoy our time with these little kids right and then we'll figure it out later um Everything's kind of like a five-year plan at yeah. at longest, right? Because no one can really project beyond that. You know, I mean, there's hopes and aspirations, but the yeah, reality things are going to change. Yeah, the things always change. So um, so we, are, we were all in. My wife was in. Okay, all right, let's do this. You know what I mean? So we bought a 150-year-old home in Los Alamos, and it's been epic. Um, big change, you know, a little farther from the ocean, but, you know, a big winemaking community up there. Lot of kids, you know, she's going to school in San Inez and and I think it's things like where she's like, Look, Dad, the persimmons are changing color, you know what I mean? And yeah, like that's it's awesome. kind of the back to the nature movement, you know what I mean? So we're kinda of mm-hmm. out of the concrete and we're like into pastures. And so I think for us that feels better, you know, where as a parent, you know, you're not worried about them getting hit by a car right outside your house. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's it's back to the simplicity of way things maybe used to be, right? When we grew up or our parents grew up. Yeah, no, I right. love that
0: man. Good for you guys. Um, moving to business again, direct to consumer, you've got this beautiful little tasting room here. How how long has the tasting room actually been? I mean, for people that haven't been to the area, they can get up to Santa Barbara or south to Santa Barbara or you know wherever they may live, but where are you guys kind of in the AVAs? Kind of describe it for people that may not be familiar with the area.
1: Yeah, so Buellton, um Belton's off the 101 and it runs right off the 246. So we're basically on the eastern edge of the Santa Rita Hills. I call Belton the belly button of California because it's just this <laughs> really strange, awesome spot that is very necessary for production of the rest of California.
0: What an awesome way to you describe it. I, mean? I love that. I'm taking and that with me.
1: Solvang is just a trippy spot and yeah, and uh but yeah, so we're basically 45 miles north of Santa Barbara on the 101, mm-hmm. right? And it smacked dab in Buellton. Uh, the, the production facility is, you know, we're sitting in it, and I just dialed out a corner of the room. I'm uh, very contemporary to, to feel um, clean and welcoming with live edge slabs and uh, Barcelona chairs to, to have a cool vibe for people to come taste wines, hang out. Uh, like the tangibility, I think, for people who come in and they go, oh, wow, like, this is production you know what i mean yeah this is that's you know barrel you know and so people enjoy that right most people have no idea how wine is made even though they've been drinking it their whole lives
0: no and even if they think they have an idea there's a lot of misconceptions or a lot of assumptions and I, i agree look the big grand tasting rooms they're beautiful they're well built there was a lot of love put into them and a lot of money something like this what you guys have here, is. I think if you come in here and this doesn't like speak to your heart and make you happy and curious and you want to like start pointing to stuff, go, Oh, what's that? What's that? What's that? Then wine maybe isn't for you. I mean, this is, yeah, this, this is, is great. This is
1: the real. Yeah. So it's, I guess I would probably, it's like the tin city vibe of Santa Barbara. Yeah. Right? You know yeah. What I mean? Yeah. hundred percent. we don't have a tin city, but it's, it's kind of that vibe and, uh, everyone's friendly, everyone's welcoming, you know what I mean? Everyone's supportive and, I think one of the biggest moves for us was, I mean, because L.A. is only two hours away from here, the weekends are, this is party town, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it was interesting when I was in New Zealand in the North Island, uh, um, in Martinborough Vineyards, we took a trip to Marlborough, which is the, you know, obviously the savvy, that Willy Wonka's factory of of the world. (laughs) So, um, but there's no city near it right so on the weekends they produce all this wine there's all these wineries on the weekends still tumbleweed ghost town you know what i mean and so on the flip of that where we're at here you know it's a bit of tumbleweed and tuesday wednesday right la shows up on thursday and they don't leave till monday you know and i think that's the biggest thing is that the consumers are right there the the i think it's like the biggest wine consumer market in the whole country, six biggest in the world, mm-hmm. right? Los Angeles is big. And so Santa Barbara has nowhere to grow, but bigger with, with LA finding out that like, you know, this is their quote unquote wine country.
0: Santa Barbara is a place that I, I have a very deep admiration for and a deep love for. This wine country is something that I am a huge fan of. Um, I wrote a story last year, kind of giving people a primer for it and it, Feels like it's still kind of waiting for that big push, that big discovery, whatever that next big thing is. In your opinion, as we start to start to kind of wrap down this main episode, um, before we do a bonus episode, I want to ask: as a newer winemaker, as somebody who is, you know, your brand is growing, you are making great stuff. What do you think? Some of the things that the region. That would help the region grow is it just more awareness from consumers is it infrastructure things like hotels things like that what do you think would help even more people come that's
1: a great question as as a small duck in a big pond i don't know if i have that answer per se um i know infrastructure in los olivos you know everything runs off septic and they weren't they weren't ready for this or built for they weren't built for what was to come right and yeah. so if anyone's been in Los Olivos in any the of their tasting rooms, going to the bathrooms a big deal. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know I mean? And I was told if you get a tasting room, you either get a choice to have a toilet or a sink. And so, yeah, infrastructure up in that neck of the woods is a big deal. Um, I don't. Yeah.
0: What about you? I'm just you? a small
1: fish. I just don't. I don't. I don't think I have an answer for the bigger. I, I can't necessarily. Maybe you'll find some answers at the Santa Barbara Vintners Festival tomorrow.
0: <laughs> Just take a microphone and ask yeah. everybody what would you change? Like, yeah, what it would, would like you I'm change? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, as we start to kind of wind this one down, um, if people want to learn more about these wines, they want to learn kind of more about your background, your process, they want to come up and experience this tasting room. Whether it's websites, information, obviously it's direct to consumer. So you guys are doing online sales and things like that. Yes. Wine club. Um, where can people kind of get all that information? The, the at? easiest way is
1: Instagram, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and then just DM us, right. It's the cleanest, easiest way. I think that's even easier for people than emails these days. Yeah. Right. That was um, how we set up this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's Instagram. It's funny just from a social media, like not that I'm some guru or anything like that, but like it seems like Facebook's fallen off the platform and Instagram's just very mainstream, which I support even though it's the same company. Um, yeah. Instagram is where we're, it, 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 we're trying to share our story, you know, and it's a so, long story short, a, a DM, Hey, I want to come taste in the cellar. And absolutely. You know what I mean? It's Instagram's a bad drug. So the wife's on it all the time. You know what I mean? And so, That's fair. Yeah. I try to stay off of it as much as possible, but it's hard to do. Um. yeah, I think that would be the cleanest way, you know, we obviously have a website that we sell all of our wines through, so the website, uh, email, but, you know, we're happy to just, at this point, you know, we give everything we got, you know, if anyone, you call us up and say, call me in my cell and say, hey, I want to come taste, yeah, absolutely, you know what I mean, we're here seven days a week, right, and so that's where Having a tangible tasting room in the cellar by appointment is crucial, I feel like, because it's just opened up so many doors for people like yourself. Just roll right up, you know what I mean? And have a glass and a chat, you know, check the vibe and then take off. And I think that's
0: I think that's important. Good for you guys, man. Um, Well, like I said, I'm going to keep you around. We're going to do a bonus episode, which people can find um, on Patreon. Subscribers get that one. But in the meantime, I just want to thank you so much for the time. Again, I put the feeler out if anybody wanted to record um, before the uh, festival tomorrow. And could not be more stoked. Um, I had read about you guys. Admittedly, I had not tasted your wines before. um, But coming here and, and tasting through and spending time with you has just been an absolute treat. And I wish you guys the very, very best moving forward. Right
1: on, Carver. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you very much, man.
0: Thank you, thank you, thank you once again to Colin for taking the time out of his day. Thank you to his wife for helping to facilitate, watching their little girls and watching, again, just, I mean, kids in the background. We had people in the back. I mean, this is a busy, busy time, and this was a last-minute thing, so I'm so, so grateful for him for taking the time to sit down on the show and I hope you enjoyed it definitely check out their wines Um, I'm not just saying this because he was nice enough to come on and taste me on them they really are delicious I walked out of there with several bottles myself thank you once again to Ali Coyle who provides the music for the show thank you to all of you who do support the show on free feeds um, wherever you're listening to it and obviously thank you to everyone who supports on Patreon it has been a wild couple of months with some big changes happening in the background we had a little bit of a gap in episodes but we are back everything is strong throughout at the end of the year and there was some great new content coming to patreon with all the updates they have made so thank you everybody stay safe out there enjoy the holidays they are coming up soon and we are going to hit the ground running and i will see you soon take care the best seats podcast is an original production of the best seats it is written edited produced and owned by myself Crawford McCarthy founder and principal of the best seats it's based in orange county california it is subsidized through generous monthly donations at patreon.com forward slash the best seats the following are the names of those who subscribed at the highest monthly tier, a.k.a. norm status, and allow me to continue producing this show each and every month. As a thank you for their continued support, here are the names. Serena Warino, George Pavlov, Eric Lutz, Paige Reardon, Loco Lipo, Tim Falk, Burrito No Rito, Sasha Lyons, Son of Bubbles, Jay Baker, Tim Swine, Burger Master, It Ain't Easy Being Greasy, Boyga Kang. Thank you for your support.